Justify prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgos and Gupta Hello everyone in today's episode we'll be discussing political violence in India both its stormy history as well as its rather turbulent present we'll explore the almost organic interface of violence with elections we've just had five elections in five states in india um, and several of these elections were fought on law and order issues the promise to end violence but how far are we getting in that quest india's political landscape as you all know is no stranger to violence one need only recall the history of punjab and its unique relationship with insurgency which prompted the original tada act the terrorist and disruptive activities prevention act its progeny of course have have multiplied since then there is also uttar pradesh with increasing incidents of communal and caste based violence with the government sometimes a participant and sometimes an enforcer and lest i forget west bengal where electoral violence is endemic and there's been this horrific killing of eight people in birbhum district recently to just show where we are in 21st century india i'm pleased and delighted to introduce my friend and professor of history at the university of cambridge shruti kapila shruti is the author of the pioneering work violent fraternity political thought in the global age and i'm delighted to have her today to discuss issues of political violence and also her great book Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Orga. It's always a pleasure to be in conversation with you, with Vidhi, which has been a kind of, you know, great uh, context for me to learn about emerging debates in law and politics in India. So a total pleasure. Thanks very much, Shruti. And before we dive into a discussion of the book, I thought for our audience, it would be useful if I gave a very, very short summary. In her book, Shruti analyzes modern Indian history from the first rebellion of 1857 to independence in 1947, and the many political figures in 19th and 20th century India. The book frames Indian history through the lens of ideas and the power of ideas as objects of political innovation and transformation. It's a remarkable book, and having read it as a lawyer, I think it uh, it has many insights uh, uh, on various. issues as well as well as various personalities including a very original take on the constitution which we will come to praising violent fraternity thomas blom hansen the author of an equally remarkable book the law of force has pithily captured some of shruti's arguments antagonism between hindus and muslims that culminated in partition was foundational to indian political life and the indian constitution was a direct response to this enduring crisis of violence as shruti argues this was not just partition violence as we think of it usually it was india's civil war so shruti first on the title the word violence and the word fraternity don't ordinarily sit well together there's a conflation there fraternity yeah. implies a kind of brotherhood violence implies a kind of enmity yeah. uh why have you used this title Well, thank you. It's a paradox, and it's a paradox—a deliberate a paradox—because one of the claims of the book is that any politics, um, whether in the West, any politics, is dependent on the idea of antagonism or opposition or even enmity. And I was quite struck that in India, uh, in contrast to Europe, 
so if you look at even most recently with the Jewish question in the mid 20th century, very catastrophic violence, the idea of the foreigner or more recently the immigrant, the refugee, the idea of the foreigner, the external has always occupied that exist that place of the political enemy for, 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 for you know. And in India, it's the opposite. It's the intimate brother. And you know, this is why the Gita is so instructive and becomes so paradigmatic for our political thinkers. It's the intimate brother, it's the kin, it's the neighbor. And I'll just give you one contrasting example since you began with the mutiny. So in the, in the Indian mutiny of 1857, which actually takes the British two years to quell. And you know, it's the largest violence the British will see in the 19th century outside of Crimea. So it's a really violent moment. It's not something that just happens in a few kasbas in UP. It's actually quite widespread and pretty violent. Indians kill British men, women, and ch ch children in large numbers. We've all seen Janoon, you know, you can sort of remember from that, you know, how much is it where the British uh, domestic fabric got, you know, part of the, became part of the violence. And 90 years later, uh, the British are singularly spared uh, in when when you when you have the moment of decolonization, freedom, or partition, however you want to name that time, and uh, and I was struck by that. So what happened? And the answer lies in actually India's uh, first failed moment of mass mobilization, the Swadeshi movement of 1905-08, when Indian leaders actually realize that the British state, though small, is incredibly powerful and will now need a completely different political vocabulary to mount uh, a challenge. So it's not so that leads to the question, sorry to interrupt you, but that leads to the question. So is India a fraternity at all? Well, yes, I mean, fraternity is given. This is this is precisely the point. Hindus and Muslims have been uh, fraternal, have lived for centuries uh, together. And 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 so, in the, so, of course, for Ambedkar, the problem is precisely that India is non-fraternal. And for him, the non-fraternal aspect is in the caste system uh, because caste demands separation. And so he's saying like, how do you make India into a democratic brotherhood? Because there is this fission separation at the heart of the caste system. And he would actually therefore triangulate uh, reservations as we understand it today, or the recognition of the Dalit as at the center of India's affirmative action with the partition question, you know, with the Hindu That's right. That's right. And, 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 and you know, I just want to uh, continue with this line of thought, because when I was reading the book, it struck me that most of its chapters, uh, whether it deals with Ambedkar, who mm -hmm. thinks that India is not a fraternity because it's defined by caste, which is based on division, uh, whether it's uh, Savarkar, who obviously sees the Muslim as, as, as someone who doesn't have his Punyabhumi in India, so doesn't really belong here into this fraternity of Hindus, as he thinks of the country, uh, and Hindus is widely defined as including other Indic religions as well in his conceptualization. So it seems to me that there is, India's always had this history of violence, uh, but never really a history of fraternity. Would that be an accurate description? Well, that's a very interesting way to put it. I would actually go the opposite. I would say that India has been a fraternity, is a given brotherhood. Look, people live cheek by jowl with a huge amount of distinction, a, a huge amount of all kinds of inequality. Uh, so it's not, it's a dense fabric. It's a dense social fabric, despite it 
including its... Uh, uh, so the difference, if I may be allowed to make a kind of historic comparison between Europe and India, is that actually all um, kind of passages into modern statecraft, like for the constitution in, in Britain too, uh, you know, they have, uh, or parliamentary representation, have gone through the trajectory of civil war. So, you know, we all have read Hilary Mantel. I mean, all of that is actually about religious civil wars at the heart of Catholicism and Protestantism in Britain, which then wrecks violence and out of which you produce Thomas Hobbes, who's the theorist of the modern state. Modern state meaning that the, the state will be the rightful holder and prosecutor of violence, right? And up to the, till the till date, this is the story. Now in India, this is not to say that the Mughals were great. The, in, the, in India, the same or just simply peaceful. But it is a striking uh, parallel that India did not have religious war, wars in the early modern period. And in a way, our civil war it takes place in 1947, in between Hindus and Muslims at, at the moment of, of partition. And partly the question of violence, it's not just about fraternity. The question is that violence is decoupled from the state in India. This is the most significant innovation of India's anti-colonial thinkers, Gandhi in the non-violent register, Tilak in the violent register, to actually say that, you know, violence is something that we individuals possess. It is a capacity that you and I have. It is not something that the state can abstract and take, which of course it has taken and depoliticized Indians. And this in a way is at the heart of the sedition debates in India. Uh, you know, Tilak's case. And this is, I think, the fundamental division in India. There's an ideological psychic division in India between Hindutva and non-Hindutva. But there is also a real structural problem or status of Indian politics that the state is, you know, not the same as, as, as you know, as the political order. And, and you know, and there and is I think a you make a very thread. interesting point there, as in, and this is kind of a running thread in your book, which mm -hmm. I really urge everyone to read, as in for oh, a book that's written by an academic historian, it's startlingly simple and easy to read, and you can go through these chapters very quickly, as I did over two days. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think there is the running thread is this decoupling mm -hmm. of violence from the state, mm -hmm. and that move allows you to see partition as... Mm -hmm. A civil war, as in it's not state-sponsored, it, it kind of happens uh, at that time. But I'm wondering how true that is uh, today, because some might say, yeah, and I'm only playing devil's advocate here, that the civil war hasn't happened. The civil war is yet to happen. Wow. It's going to come. And yeah. if it is going to come, uh, it's going to be very European in the sense that this decoupling is not there. You can see uh, there is, and it's not just the state, and perhaps it's the state resonating what it sees in its people. You can see that there is the, there are the beginnings of a certain kind of division, which has always remained in India, as, as you've pointed out, uh, the brother was always the enemy. Uh, and I think that has kind of translated, like it did in Mantel's England, hmm. translating into the state. So well, it's very how, do you, how do you see where we are going? Now, I, now, this is, now let's come to the contemporary moment uh, because there are debates on how lineages into the present belong to our founding moment in politics. But let's say a couple of things about the state. All states are coercive. 
that we cannot get away from, right? But the thing is that most states, uh, and this is where the story of the Indian state is slightly different from, from the Western one, that the modern state was external. When the appearance of the modern state came with the censuses and, and the like with the colonial state, it was external to Indian society. It sat on, on top. It was a superficial, but very powerful body. Now, in post-independence, I was just having this debate with colleagues last night at dinner, as it happens over high table, precisely over this issue about the state and, and in India. And you could say that perhaps the Nehruvian generation uh, was also quite, in a way, had a kind of sense of noble obligation to improve Indian society and bring it in line to a different kind of, where this, you know, it had to come in line with certain, let's say, enlightened values of the state. Now, that is not the case since India's multi-party democracy in the 80s. One could arguably say that in today's India, it's moving a lot like China, where the party and the state might not might become indistinguishable. So it might become a party state rather than a necessarily a civil war. There may be people who fantasize uh, about you know, uh, large-scale violence in India or fear it, but I think that the, the, the trajectory of the Indian state is now precisely to close this gap between the political order and, and state power. And, and the mechanism for that is the BJP and the RSS. So it's more like a pa party state in India. Well, I think that, that, that that's a possible trajectory that, 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 that we could embark on. And certainly it, it, it's, uh, it's certainly within the realms of possibility. Uh, but... I think there's another point which I was trying to make, which is the fact that perhaps not so much civil war, but as much as the centrality of political violence and the acceptability of political violence emanating from the state among societies. So let me give you an example. Uh, when Yogi Adityanath came to power in 2017, he has said, and I quote, this is so for our, for our listeners, as in if you commit a crime, then you will be hit. Okay. Thok uh, can mean a variety of things, but let's, let's translate it as hit. Um, and, and this is something that is, this is a popular plank that maybe it's a failure of our justice system, but it's a very popular plank that this is a sarkar and that a number of persons cutting across religious lines has said is a sarkar that is strong on law and order. It doesn't brook any dissension. It does not brook any crime. Crime rates in UP are down and, and this is factual. They are down. Right? So it seems to me that there is an appetite for political violence emanating from the state. How do you see this, okay. this development, even though it's kind of anecdotal? Okay, so, so no, I mean, two points. One, that since the 80s, um, certainly since the long decade of, you mentioned, mentioned the insurgency and counterinsurgency in Punjab, but it was also the decade of riots. So when you had the plethora of, as it were, an, the kind of multiplication of armed constabularies, which were then seen to be part of the agents of riots that took place in UP, in Maharashtra, in Gujarat. You know, it was a decade of riots and caste violence right from the late 70s on to up to the mid to late uh, 80s. Post that with the Ram Janmabhumi, what you get, and therefore you get, as it were, my point being that the state machineries were always, particularly police, civic machineries were always complicit in riots in India. And, you know, commissions after commissions have, you know, borne witness to that. Then you have, as it were, the second 
change in this kind of relationship between violence and politics, where violence becomes a form of mobilization, as we saw with the Ramjanmi movement, wherever the chariot went, there were riots. And it can saw, and that then translated into political power, electoral power for the BJP. You know, Bloom Hansen, but also uh, Jafalo have shown that, you know, in, in, the, in, in, the, in their work. But now you have something else because now you have, as it were, state capture, and this is my, this is the thing. And, 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 and you know, there have been multiple sources of violence in India. But as I said that, you know, the, being against the state through the Gandhian vocabulary, towards say even environmentalism, there's been a kind of very protean array of, you know, non-status, anti-status. You don't have to be a secessionist to be anti-state. You know, you can be an environmentalist to be against the state. And that kind of coheres a lot of the Indian political uh, system. Now with Yogi and all of the rest, what you're getting is a desire, as I say, to close the gap between the political order, which lies beyond the state, Precisely, it has these violent capacities for mobilization. These people have deployed it. They know it all too well. Plus, you know, uh, and now to kind of seek an order out of it. And therefore the state will, you know, look like a more kind of authoritarian machinery. Uh, and as you say, more in line with what might appear as a more Western state of kind of monopolizing violence. But I think it's not, it's not taking that form because this is not based on a contractual system. The Western state is a contractual system of give and take, whereas this is very authoritarian. You get in line or you are going to be in trouble. Slightly that's different. Right. And I think there's a very interesting reason as to why that's also happening. And that I think is the important role that is played by the RSS, uh, hmm. which uh, obviously has come much closer uh, to state power than it ever has in its history uh, at this point of time, uh, which is a kind of uh, inflection point for the RSS because the RSS has deliberately, whether it's from the time of uh, KB Hedgewar, who wanted to keep it distinct from the Hindu Mahasabha, wanted to keep it beyond politics. He himself was used to attend Congress sessions. Several RSS members were also members of the Congress right at the outset, trying to create this notion that this is about culture and not about politics. And this is well before God say and so on. Um, and I think the RSS has always kind of kept that, uh, that this is above politics, whether it's convenience or whether it's principle, that's a different issue. Uh, but given the fact that the RSS is kind of sitting outside the formal state machinery, at least uh, theoretically, as how do you see that? Uh, well, I mean, if, yeah. So if you, since you mentioned the Hedgewa moment and, and the, the thing is, it's not that they were pro-Congress, that they, uh, the, the founding figures of the RSS said. Could you just say that again? Because there was that thing. So sorry. That so the found, I said, you know, uh, it's not that they were pro-Congress, but rather the founding figures such as Hedgewa. So just can you start the answer again? So we'll cut that part out. Yeah. Just, okay. I'll ask the question. I'll cue you in again. Uh, yeah. No, because you you just you just talk me. So you say you start by saying that uh, uh, since you spoke about Hedgewa, yes. Yeah, yeah just say, since you spoke about Hedgewa and the founding moment of the RSS, I mean, you know, it's not that these members were they were they were going to the to 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 the Congress. Yes, there was a fair amount of overlap between Mahasabha and 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 and, and, and Congress, but the RSS was a very strict body of allegiance and of loyalty. 
And this was, a, I have called it a kind of formative secret society, which offered a second world to the manifest world, right? Precisely because figures like Hedge Wart thought that the political realm was inadequate. It was a waiting, it was not a waiting room, it was a preparatory room for the creation of a new political fraternity in India, which has come to its fruition today in its near hundredth year in 1920, you know, it was founded in 1925 and 2025, it's going to be its centenary. So it wasn't that it was above politics. It always thought that the given political realm was inadequate and that it needed to prepare the young man anew for a new kind of political fraternity to come, come about. So today, that's why I'm saying it's a party state in the sense that you have different organs of the same kind of political matrix, RSS, BJP, uh, in, in power and with state capture, that it is hard to distinguish just the way with CCP, it is hard to distinguish where the party begins, where the society ends, and where the state begins. And this is the kind of blurring we are getting in India. We're different. So people talk about institutional capture. It's not simply institutional capture. It is the creation of a new kind of statecraft in India. Uh, precisely because figures like uh, the RSS and all realize, uh, much like the founding figures realize, that the domain beyond the law was politically potent in India. And that but I'd like to, but I'd like to push back a little bit on this. I, I certainly agree with you the of the fact that the RSS thought that the political domain was inadequate, as in whether that realization was well held or because of purely pragmatic considerations is a different issue. Uh, but as far as the BJP is concerned, uh, and this, this conflation of party and state, uh, I think there is something to be said about the fact that there are uh, a number of different viewpoints that sit within the BJP today that sometimes is portrayed as monolithic. It's easy to think of it that way. And that's kind of the meter in which uh, public commentary tends to view the BJP. Uh, but, and while there has been a certain degree of movement towards a kind of one India, one X kind of thinking. Uh, but there is, but there are different shades of opinion that seem to exist within the BJP on a range of issues. So if we were to take one issue which uh, kind of surprised many people, and by the BJP, I mean the both the party itself, as well as everyone whom we think of as, as sort of affiliated to the Sangh, uh, if we take the issue of Section 377, um, which is the decriminalization of homosexuality. Uh, and at that point of time, it was very interesting because there was a sharp fissure uh, down the middle in the BJP with a set of members saying that this is against Indian culture uh, and a set of members saying that this is entire Indian culture has always had its Brihannalas, it has always had its Shikhandis, and this is something that we should accept. So do you think the BJP is as monolithic as it's been? No, it's not. To be, or is it just some intellectual I, I, No, it's not. And I will take a bigger issue than, than sexuality, though sexuality is an important issue. Uh, I will take the issue of religion. So someone like Savarkar is an atheist. So he is not simply anti-Muslim, he's actually anti-Buddhism as well. So it's not simply a kind of Indic uh, tradition, his whole argument is that India lacks a political gravity precisely because, you know, Ashoka became its greatest emperor and became nonviolent. That's and, right. Know, so I think that's an interesting aside that, in fact, if you read the first 30 pages of the essentials of Hindutva, you'd think that the biggest enemy to India are the Buddhists. And yeah, and for him it is. It is the primary. For him Absolutely. it is the primary 
uh, it is a primary antagonism in India because it's and and you know in a way he's also ventriloquizing he's also speaking for the present and Buddha stands and non-violence stands for Gandhi it's very very clear Gandhi and you know but also to some degree Ambedkar because Ambedkar is also so the the, the issue in India so in the BJP world is precisely whether it is a politicalness of Hinduism that of Hinduness which is what um, Savarkar is after. Savarkar is after a political Hinduness. He's not. He's not saying Hindutva to him is actually, as you know, Shashi Tharoor and others have written. He's actually saying Hindu. Hindu. It is not the realization of Hinduism. It has got nothing to do with religion. It's got everything to do with what a political Hindu might be. And whereas you have, as it were, the VHP, and you have other kinds of figures who see. Uh, BJP as a realization of political power of Hinduism. Very different. And this, this is a kind of contest you are seeing. It is a contest also between the BJP, uh, the BJP and the RSS because the RSS has a very different kind of uh, idea of what India should, uh, should, should look like. Having said all of that, there is a kind of uh, complete coherence to the project in terms of a Hindu first identity for India, uh, for which then legal other social institutions can be manipulated and be, be made ready, which has been the task of, 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 of the BJP, of the RSS. But above all, I think it's a culture of political culture based on obedience and loyalty. So it's not quite like a political party, other political parties, where there is, you know, there may be obedience, but this is a kind of um, yeah, it is. We are on some slippery slope here. <laughs> yeah, but there is a kind of disciplined obedience to a leader, and that is the hierarchical notion of leadership, which is which has been inculcated in the RSS. I don't know. I just I just get a sense that certainly that might be the case with the RSS, but I think the BJP is sometimes not given uh, enough credit of being more diverse than it is, uh, and I think that that is a, a bit of intellectual laziness. But as you rightly pointed out as in there is a kind of larger project. And, uh, and I think that's a great segue uh, to talk about the constitution, uh, mm -hmm. because a large part of your book deals with Ambedkar. Um, and, and as you say, and as I've also felt as an Ambedkar's often and, and kind of very paradoxically now become the holy cow, right? As it's, you see that everyone's appropriating Ambedkar. Uh, from the left to the right, I think mean, the communists <laughs> who really didn't have the time of day for him at that point of time. Uh, so now, as far as Ambedkar is concerned, uh, Ambedkar, of course, has thought about violence and fraternity more than some of the other figures that you've talked about in your book, uh, and then sort of more deeply in a more academic kind of way with a certain sophistication uh, that perhaps is lacking among some, some others. But as far as this the primary point is concerned as it seems that for him, the constitution was the testament to the kind of fraternity that he hoped that India would one day become. Uh, now, this constitution was supposed to become some kind of umbrella document, which is home for disparate faiths, uh, classes, creeds, religions to interact as citizens. So we really didn't in the constitution, we took India as the way it was, didn't try to change it in any significant way, uh, but instead hoped that now with Indian institutions, uh, with self-rule, we are going to get to a better place with kind of a constitution that is similar to the Government of India Act 1935. 
so what is your view on how ambedkar soft fraternity and where do you see the constitutional project uh, 75 right. years okay. later i'll be i'll be very quick but it will relate to the theme of violence so i have not interpreted um ambedkar as the great rights thinker you know the giver of rights to india but someone who is really a much uh, harder thinker than that you know in the sense he said where does violence come from in india he's saying well violence is is what has organized caste caste is basically a violent institution it is so violent that it doesn't even need to display its violence his point is very similar to the other figures of in, of the indian age which is that it is something in in ourselves it is immanent it is not something that is out there which we can manage or or or, or negotiate his problem is post the pune pact that he cannot he cannot and has never depended on the the kind of goodwill if you will of the upper caste to share power with with the lower caste and he's saying now that's not going to happen you know gandhi may want remote, internal reform and maybe the more durable way to kind of get out of caste but the problem with caste is that these people are not going to share power there it is going to be so the only way you can do it is that this is a kind of hidden civil war in india's society is to actually pitch different castes in opposition to each other through reservation so that they can be competition between groups so this is in a way a non violent solution to the violence of caste and this is actually borne out in the multi party democracy of india that barring the bjp all the parties that came up are caste parties multiple party systems in india have been caste parties and that is how as it were political contestation has taken place in a democracy in india so i think the centerpiece of the indian constitution over and above is the caste question and and in a way you could say if you want to you know i don't want to be too controversial but in my my view a mistake was made in in the founding document because no political rights i'm not talking separate electorates <clears throat> were reserved for religious minorities and which is therefore allowed for the trampling so you know you kind of resurrected the caste question which was required which of course you know meant that india could have a kind of antagonism of caste you know different castes could kind of struggle for political power but somehow pakistan was seen to be the end point of political rights for muslims which actually was a catastrophic error for the indian republic because most muslims did not move so indian muslims were actually you know have paid the cost in a way for the indian constitution yeah and it and it and it allowed this kind of division to remain outside the system as an in society rather than the that's right and therefore you can have a majority politics that is why you can have that that's, that's what allows the fertile ground for a majority in politics absolutely as and so i think the hope was in the other direction that uh, you know by not talking about it as in it will go away uh, but i think uh, what has happened whether with religion is that certainly it hasn't gone away uh, but even with caste and i think you 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 say that this is this is of course created this contestation as in within the realm of the constitution and of course uh, with mandal coming in as in that has kind of uh, amplified that manifold as in because a lot of the caste based parties are post mandal party that's right uh, in yeah. that sense uh, but uh, you you made a very important point and that resonates with uh, with what has happened in the recent elections right even if you were to take the example of up uh, one of the one of the key factual basis as to why the bjp has done so well again as it is because of the split in the schedule caste both That's between right. the jatars and the non jatars yes. uh, and 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 it's kind of mind boggling as in for for a bengali middle class bengali who 
aware of caste growing up, but because of my privilege and background, perhaps not as aware of it as I should have. Uh, just it's mind boggling to see the kinds of distinctions and the kinds of identity politics that are necessary in order to win elections in India. And it's uh, and it's sort of uh, the BJP is obviously, despite its larger project, as it is very much playing that game better than anybody else. Now, so how do you see this effort of creating this mutual antagonism within the political sphere through affirmative action? How do you see it uh, is in having achieved its... its no, I mean, I think, it's, I think in a way... Or, you, or do you think just it's too early to judge because caste no, is I don't say that. century I think old? Rules, not at all. I think the rules of the game were set and, uh, you know, by Ambedkar in this manner and uh, and for good reason. I'm not saying there were, there were no good reasons. But I think there are, you can take the contrasting example. There were many reasons why the, the Congress lost the Punjab election. But it is interesting that the sitting Dalit chief minister could not as it were, articulate Dalit identity, given the fact that, you know, a, a more than a third of Punjab is Dalit, that the largest Dalit population by percentage in any state is in Punjab. But then there is this idea that the Sikhs don't have caste. So, you know, there's also a squeamishness around that issue in a way that there is not that, is, that squeamishness in, in UP. So I think um, there is a question of incorporation going on and the, and, and, and the BJP is doing that. And the, the, you know, there's a word that MN Srinivas, the great anthropologist or controversial anthropologist used Sanskritization. So that, you know, that actually the lower caste want to be incorporated into a kind of high, I mean, it's a controversial thesis. It's not something I uh, fully subscribe to, but there is that process going on with the Aadmi Party, as well as with, uh, with, with, with the BJP, where a kind of uh, caste-based politics is being circumvented around, around other more populist uh, questions, whether it is, you know, deliver, you know, whether it's welfare delivery, whether it is, you know, upward mobility, whether it is public yep. goods. So those kinds of things are also coming into to play. Having said that, there is also a, the problem is not that, you know, the BJP got these votes. The problem is that the BSP gave up on its political role. And, and you know, and that vacuum is not going to just remain. It will That's be... Right. It will, it will be filled, and I, and, I, and I think that's a that's a sort of larger conversation on UP, and we can have a another yeah. conversation on it. Uh, but it just it reminded me of something that the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, said uh, about race, mm -hmm. uh, and it was in relation to affirmative action programs. Uh, and he said this to considerable criticism from uh, both his colleagues Sonia Sotomayor on the bench, as well as. Uh, Right. Uh, several commentators. He says the way to not discriminate on the basis of race is by not discriminating on the basis of race. Okay, so that's what he was trying to say. That you know, the, so you just don't talk about race. You know, so it's basically. I don't think. I mean, so I'm not I'm, of that. I'm, yeah. I'm no, so, that. so basically, if you if you were to hold that kind of view, which is what seems to have happened for religion in some sense and not for caste in India, is that we said, okay, the with the Pakistan question, the Muslim question has gone. Uh, and so we don't need to talk about it anymore. Uh, do you think that had we done the same with the caste question, where would we have been today? No, no. I think I think there was no way out. This question had to be addressed, and and I think this is both uh, Ambedkar's triumph. Uh, his triumph is not actually the constitution per se, you know, and its forward-looking social doctrine, but the triumph is that the recognition of the Dalit founds the idea of national citizenship. 
you know, the national citizen, because his argument is what is common to India? What is common to India from every village to, to, to across villages is the caste question and the Dalit question. So it's not about the OBCs and the myriad distinctions. He's actually saying the untouchable, the Dalit, is what unifies India because it is a common thread across states, across linguistic barriers and the like. So I think that I think, you know, was important, was required. And I don't think that job is done. I mean, you know, the thing about India's inequality is that it's like, it's nowhere near that, you know, fine and said you had 70 years of reservation. But as a result, you know, it is also not, you know, I'm now not saying anything very new, but it is also not a coincidence that the BJP rises to electoral power after Mandal. So it, in a way, you know, it is a, it is also a beneficiary, a perverse beneficiary, because it is a consolidation. Well, of because power. every action has an equal and opposite reaction. No, but, so it, 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 no, but no, it's more than that. It gives the insights, the occasion for upper caste consolidation. Consolidation, absolutely, absolutely, and I think that upper caste consolidation was done so successfully that then it allowed for further consolidation of different kinds, as which is what the BJP is playing, and uh, and certainly and therefore the OBC. The OBC became the floater voter of India. But exactly. even that is kind of changing, as you know, because a lot of the OBC parties are part of the NDA alliance, or the OBCs are also beginning to vote, barring in UP and a couple of other places, are also voting for the BJP, because the BJP is trying to create a new political settlement of India. And it is, it, you know, it, it, it is an aggressive political settlement of India, which in, in, you know, which is taking all sorts of forms from the, from the kind of reshaping perhaps of the constitution uh, to federalism, but above all this, the new compact, as I said, between the citizen and the state. And I, and think, I think that's a, that's a great uh, moment to leave it. Uh, uh, I think this new political settlement is beautifully and succinctly captures where we are, because there is a feeling uh, that that exists currently uh, that the that the the, BG, the BJP uh, is firmly in charge without there being uh, anything effective either in terms of ideas or in terms of political will uh, that exists, and and I think what the shape this new political settlement takes. Uh, is very interesting. We could go in any directions with this, uh, some more hopeful and some less so. Uh, but I think to understand the directions it would take, we need to look at our history. Uh, and I think Shruti's book does uh, a wonderful job of looking at India's history from 1857 to 1947, a very instructive period uh, to what is happening at the time, at this time. So thank you very much, Shruti for this conversation Thank and also you. writing this wonderful book. I once Thank again encourage everyone to pick up this book. Uh, it will very much be worth your time. Thanks, Shruti. Time for Clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit tougher than Clat. Clearly, last week's question was a googly for several of you. Several answers came in, but no right ones. That what is the index where the Ukrainian parliament scored 0 0.11 uh, early on and then increased significantly in the lead up to the war. What is the name of the index where the Ukrainian parliament scored 0 0.11? The answer is the RICE index, which looks at the level of consensus or cohesion in a multi-member parliamentary body. I think everyone 
got a bit bamboozled by that one. So here's hoping that this times will be easier. Turning to this week's quiz, connect a sculpture by William Bennis in Trafalgar Square with an island in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. A hint, think the Sepoy Mutiny or the First War of Indian Independence of 1857, which is covered in Shruti's excellent book. Do write in with your answers to justify at vidilegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to win an exciting prize. And since we spoke about violence, and violence in India is synonymous with many people, but noble violence in India is synonymous with Bhagat Singh. So here is one of my favorites, Sarfaroshi Ki Tamanna. Enjoy the song, Arjun. Sarfaroshi Ki Tamanna Ab Hamare Dil Mein Sarfaroshi Ki Tamanna अब हमारे दिल में है देखना है जोर कितना बाजुए का दिल में है सरफरोशी की तमन्ना अब हमारे दिल में है इफ यू एंजॉयड लिसनिंग टू दिस पॉडकास्ट Follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.